The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. And joining me for the hour is Mr. Steve Krakauer, who's got a great book called Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People, which made it very easy for me to come up with a Twitter space name, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Good. Steve, Steve, introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, who are you? What's your background? How'd you get involved interested in media? And what made you so cynical, even though you're still in it? Yeah, well, thanks, Michael. I appreciate the the, uh, the invite here. And uh, I love, you know, being able to talk in these new platforms about an old problem, let's say, uh, old old media problem that uh, that thankfully, you know, thanks to some of the new opportunities that are out there, the new choices that that are available for people from the audience to to really go and, and not have to rely on the gatekeepers anymore, like Twitter spaces and elsewhere. I think that, that that's really exciting. So as you mentioned, I was a, I'm, I'm a longtime journalist. I, I was, uh, was a media reporter at places like TV Newser and Mediaite covering, covering the media themselves and living in New York City. Previously worked at places like Fox News and NBC. And then in 2011, I went over and worked at CNN, uh, originally for Piers Morgan, and, and then eventually uh, in the 2012 election and beyond uh, as more of a overseeing all of basically how does television live online? So how does it live on social media? How does it live on the website? Um, I did that for about three years. And then I moved to the blaze, which uh, brought me down to Dallas and out of uh, out of New York City, uh, which has been really a, a great eye opener for several reasons. So I worked with uh, with Glenn Beck at the blaze for about two or three years. And then I went off on my own. Now I'm the executive producer of the Megyn Kelly show, which uh, is a podcast video show on Sirius XM. And then also I write the Fourth Watch media newsletter, which has been out for about three years now. And then, uh, as you mentioned, wrote the book uh, Uncovered, which really has been a reaction in a lot of ways to a disappointment, I would say, with the corporate media that I love and have been a part of. And no, there is definitely... I mean, we'll we'll go through a lot of the problems. I'm I'm somewhat cynical in that sense, but it's more disappointed. And I have to say, I I'm still at the end of the day a bit of an optimist about all of this because I do think what's what's exciting about this moment in time, and I do think we're at this real precipice in 2023, where there's going to be winners and losers on a big scale still to come within the next couple of years, is that I think people are really opening their eyes and waking up. And the average person who's not overly political, who is not a you know, doesn't have politics as their hobby. They're just a just a person that has a life and is doing other things. They are starting to see the real problems with the corporate press that they're not being served 
by. And I think that that's going to hopefully shake with it some change. I want to define for the audience corporate media. Um, yeah. Because I think it's more than just TV. I mean, you can make the argument that Facebook is corporate media. Twitter is corporate media to an extent. Yeah, I think so. I, I would say my definition of corporate media, and I, I use this interchangeably with a term that I didn't create, but I, I definitely have, uh, have popularized, which is the Acela media. And I think of this as media that is largely based in New York and D.C. If anyone's familiar with with those areas, there's an Acela, uh, the Amtrak train that's very fast that goes between New York and D.C. It goes to some other places also, but notably, it bypasses all of the local stops. And so when I was at CNN and I'm working in New York, I would take the Acela constantly, along with a lot of other people in the media and in politics and other other spaces, business. And it's representative because it is it, it, you're you're isolated. You're very much in that bubble. And so I, I think of it as legacy media places like a CBS, ABC, NBC, um, but also some of the, you know, and then the New York Times and the Washington Post. And then also some of the more emerging media platforms. Think of places like a BuzzFeed or a Vice or a Vox. I would sort of put all of those within the corporate media. I do think places like Twitter and Facebook are, it's an interesting conversation to have. Like, where do they fit in all of this? I see them more as platforms than publishers. And, you know, I think that they're go, that goes with it some, some other conversations. But, um, but I, when I look at the corporate media, I think the people that are almost always based in those New York and DC locations. Yeah. And I, I would, I would make the assumption that it's also sort of a distinction of profit versus nonprofit, which, you know, goes into altruistic reasons for getting into news True. and journalism versus non-altruistic. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And I and the other thing about it is, it, you know, very much there's there's the independent media, which I would say is is the is the mirror to the corporate media in these days. And and the independent media is is very vast, but think of it as like places the podcasts, you know, ecosystem, uh, Substack and other newsletters places like on YouTube and and uh, and brands that are being built every day on social media that are outside of those structures, I think that those are, that's the contrast between that and the, uh, and the, and the corporate media side. Right. And also I, I would think the in, independent media is probably much more on a regional level as opposed to national. Yeah, I think so. You know, the, one of the big problems I think, you know, I lay out five main problems that uncovered is geographic bias. And so in some ways, yeah, I think independent media can, can largely serve a, a more niche audience when it comes to geography. I also think though it, it, it can be something that serves a niche audience that is just a smaller by design, uh, closer to the audience that it's serving. Maybe it's, it's on a very specific topic, whether it's financial or whether it's um, something that's that's on a um, you know on climate or you know pick pick your topic. You can really deliver something and and direct to a person. And and I think that you know part of what's really failed with the corporate media is they originally had these very grand hopes. And, and in, in a lot of ways, there was not a lack of choices. And so you only could go to certain places. And they were trying to serve as many people as they could. Now they've kind of pulled back from that as the business model is changing on their side. They're not able to reach these people. So now they're sort of grasping at the lowest hanging fruit. And so the, uh, the rest of the people are feeling alienated because they're not being served anymore. So I, I actually think that's probably the crux of a lot of this. Um, I, I've, I've made it a point in, in several of these Twitter spaces that you know, increasingly, we're in a world where every industry is an oligopoly. There's really very little choice. There's the illusion of choice, but there's very, really, very little choice across the entire system. And uh, you know, the fact that um, there's been so much consolidation when it comes to corporate media, uh, I'm going to make the assumption is what accentuates the lack of trust in corporate media because then it makes it seem more and more as if 
there's some message that's coming from the top that's controlling the entire narrative. Yeah, I think that there it, it can feel that way. And and by having these platforms like, you know, Twitter these days now, thanks to Elon Musk on some level, but also, you know, just just through Substack, which I think has been just fan- fantastic. I my my newsletter Fourth Watch is on Substack and I think that that's been a great partnership. They're very hands-off with when it comes to content. So all of these places now can shine a light on the reality, peel, you know, peel back the curtain a bit and really expose what's going on there. And you're right. You know, I, I, another one of the five problems is coziness with power and, and kind of how interconnected everything is. And, and the truth is, and I, I can say this, I mean, certain elements of the media, certain stories in which we can get into the Hunter Biden laptop story, there is a bit more of a collusion going on by various forces. But then so many other stories, it's less than that. It's it's more about laziness or incompetence or a general fear that that a journalist might have or what's the incentive structure. But when you are connected in that way, I mean, I, when I was at CNN, it was Time Warner, and then it became Warner Media. And now it's Warner Brothers Discovery. I mean, these are just getting larger and larger and larger. So by almost accident, you know, by the, the, not necessarily a mandate from the top, but just the fact that it's all so interconnected, you, you lose the closeness to the people that, that the, the press once had. How much of that? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report/leadlaglive and get an exclusive thirty percent off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. Coziness with power that you reference accelerated post-Citizens United. And, and I'm referencing that purposely, right? Because yeah. uh, the moment you allow corporations to basically uh, have the, the power to uh, spend unlimited amounts of funds effectively on, on political candidates – Suddenly, the media now has a financial incentive to put out a certain narrative. It's interesting. You know, I, I've, I've tried to, when I wrote Uncovered, think about where did this start? And, and so Citizens United, we're looking at like 20, 2009, 2010. Um, I, maybe there were the seeds of that there. I was, I was at CNN at the time. But I also think of like that 2012 election between Romney and Obama. And again, I, I wanted to say at the forefront, I think there were valid criticisms of CNN and all, all the media when I was there. And, you know, 10, 15, 20, 50 years ago. But it, there was a, a real sense of trying to get it right. And then I don't know. Let's see. Let, let's think of if it was different candidates, if it was not Donald Trump, because that's the big elephant in the room here in 2016. How would have things how would things have been different? And I think they would have been different on some level because it, it was the night. It was this perfect confluence of the person with the the atmosphere, with the with the landscape that he was going into which accelerated all of these problems, all of these bad habits. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that, that you enter in for a lot of different reasons. The, the candidate himself with Donald Trump, with the landscape as it has changed, I think social media has played just an enormous factor on this, Twitter in particular. I mean, we could spend the rest of the hour talking just about Twitter and its effect on the media because it's so varied. Into this landscape comes Donald Trump and then it explodes it. You know, the guardrails that were once there for standards and practices and journalistic integrity have just been loosened entirely. And then in that, 
you get stories like COVID and beyond, which which now in this new environment, it's not it's not serving the public in the way that maybe they once were. I wonder if um, if you think Trump's focus on fake news actually in some ways was a positive because it, he brought to light in a very loud way the reality that there are these biases. I mean, you know, th- th- taking out sort of the, the viewpoint of Trump as a person or as a candidate, just the idea that you had some some megaphone, somebody with a megaphone basically saying, you know, this is all fake news. Uh, do you think that was actually perhaps positive for the industry or did it muddy things even more? I, I think that ultimately it, it could have been. I think there's a there's a, a theory where it might have actually been a positive. And I, I want to just point out, you know, I, I, I try in the book, I, I have a couple different you know, concepts that I lay out. One of them is like a hypocritical corrective. And this there was one element of the Trump presidency that I think is worth is worth noting that I think the press should have an adversarial relationship with power, no matter who's in the White House, no matter what party's there. And they generally don't. And in the Trump years, they certainly did. And so on some level, I think that they were maybe reconnecting with the idea of what a journalist should be, which is that they should have it should be not cozy. They shouldn't be hanging out with the press secretary and the administration having drinks after the press briefing is over, right? It should it should be that. Now, they went completely overboard, so we should acknowledge that also. And then, of course, it didn't match what happened in the administration before or the administration after. But instead of, I think, learning and, and maybe getting better from that, from that very adversarial relationship, like you talk about, you know, fake news, enemy of the people, I think they went the other way. I think they took it personally in a lot of ways. In fact, I think as I lay out and uncovered, there's really three elements to, to the Trump story. I think on one hand, it was business, right? I mean, he was so good for business, so good for ratings and clicks and subscribers. And so there was a clear business incentive to lean into that that adversarial relationship with him. The which, second, by the way, which, by the way, yeah. that, means that, that means that they loved him and hated him. At the same time, oh, oh, I, I, I think it's a sadomasochistic relationship they had with him. I mean, it, 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 it was pleasure and pain for sure. Um, and and then the, the second one is is very much it's, it's a real thing. It was personal, in in personal in the sense that not just that they felt you know, sad that they were calling him, that they were being called fake news, but you think of like The Apprentice. When Donald Trump really rose to cultural fame in 2004 when The Apprentice premiered on NBC. I was going back and looking at this when I wrote in Fourth Watch recently. 28 million people watched the finale of The Apprentice's first season. I mean, these are incredible numbers. I think there was the number three show in all of television that year. And what was The Apprentice? Well, it was NBC's hit show. It was the first hit show that NBC president Jeff Zucker had on that network. And of course, as we People probably who are listening to this know Jeff Zucker then went on to run CNN. Uh, I worked with him in 2013 when he started there. And so he had this relationship with Donald Trump from before. In fact, a lot of people in the media did. In 2005, Donald Trump got married to Melania and Jeff Zucker was there and Gail King from now CBS is there and Katie Couric was there and Chris Matthews, Barbara Walters, right on down the line. I mean, he was part of that world and then he became this turncoat. So I think it was personal too. But then, you know, the other aspect of this, and I do actually believe that a lot of people, because I talk to them in these newsrooms, in the Acela media, believe that they were in this existential fight to save democracy. You know, they were doing Watergate every day. They really, some people really believe that. And so I think it's completely ridiculous. But if you really did believe that, that's when you need to double down on your principles even more, because you need to convince the public you need to be as trustworthy as possible. But instead, they went the other direction. And, and we see this, I mean, in a literal way, it used to be, oh, you needed two sources or three sources before you put a story on the air. 
well, now maybe one, well, actually, maybe the New York Times has a source that Mueller said this or is thinking this, and then they everyone just runs with it for 24 hours. It was a total abandonment of the principles, and that's what also led to the distrust that we now see in poll after poll, record lows in the public's trust of corporate media. How, how does that get solved? I mean, it sounds, that sounds almost like a, a sort of classic cultural problem with any company, right? I mean, media is not going to yeah. be uh, different from other corporations in that sense. So how, how, how do, first of all, how do media companies uh, historically form a culture? And then how do they enforce the culture, uh, especially when presumably, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that do things remotely that are, you know, you can't necessarily fact check every single thing that some journalist might argue is uh, is being said. Uh, how do you how do you even get a culture going? It's more challenging every day. Um, and and it's social media. Again, I think Twitter we'll get into Twitter a little bit because I think that, that that's a plays a factor into this. But then COVID, as you mentioned, you know, the fact that. There's, I think there's been pros and cons to COVID when it comes to the media and, and what comes out of it. But certainly one of the negatives has been that there, it, it's harder to build a culture. I think it's like any, any company, frankly, at this point where everyone is mostly connected by Zoom meetings and Slack and not seeing that person every single day. In the book, in Uncovered, I write in chapter 10 about the Tom Cotton op-ed fiasco that happened at the New York Times. And if, if anyone's not familiar with this, let me just kind of give the, the parameters of it because it's important to understand the context of it. So in June of 2020, you know, COVID is really at the height. We've got uh, people locked down, especially in New York and D.C., where most of the New York Times staffers are. You know, they're in their apartments. They're not going outside. They're scared of COVID. And then George Floyd happens. And then the social justice protests that can then lead to the offshoot riots that's the context of then Tom Cotton, a United States senator, publishes an op-ed in the New York Times. It actually was his third op-ed that he had published in the New York Times over the span of several years, saying that, uh, that the, basically the military should get involved in stopping these dangerous riots that are the offshoots of the, the protests. It was a nuanced column, although it had kind of a, a it was, the headline was a little bit provocative. It was uh, send in the troops. And it caused this massive uproar. And I talk in the book to one of the staffers who was a, an opinion staffer at the time, who's now at New York Magazine, on the record, told me for the first time uh, some of the, what was happening in these meetings. And he was describing that there were, there were staffers that were essentially crying on these Zoom meetings that they had, saying, my friends won't talk to me anymore because I work for this, this horrible newspaper that would publish this column. And then, as we've learned, this played out publicly. And so what happened was you had a group of people, mostly lower-level staffers at the New York Times, in conjunction with activists on the outside, that started tweeting out, publishing this column puts the lives of black New York Times staffers in danger. And it was that implication, that it was this dangerous column being published, that was then going to, uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, publishing words was dangerous now. And so then it got real change. The the executives, opinion editor was, was fired and pushed out. And it's a good, it's a good lesson for it because it shows that maybe if we didn't have COVID, maybe if, if everyone was in the newsroom together, there could be a little sense of let's talk this out. Let's, let's really look, let's understand what journalism is for a minute here. Uh, but that, that of course didn't happen and said, everyone's disconnected. And so on a positive scale, I would say that you, one of the, you know, one of the, the big blind spots that the media has is that they are you know, in the bubble in New York and DC. And so through COVID, through work from home, which we are seeing more in the media space, 
people can be in their locations where they live and stay there and be part of the culture that they that they grew up in or that they they want to be in that's a potential positive but i think it's very hard to assert big changes now in a newsroom that's so disconnected and that frankly has twitter that you can you can build an audience build a brand yourself become an influencer if you will on a small scale and being part of a newsroom where you no longer feel as much affinity to the place where you work, even a place like the New York Times or NBC News, you're, you're a think of yourself as a free agent in a lot of ways. You're on your own building your own brand. You don't need those bosses. And that, that's, a, that's a real problem for the bosses that are trying to assert some level of control. Now, now of course, the, uh, that, that is, has its own downsides, of course, right? So I, I'm like I made it a point many times on uh, these Twitter spaces, I see hundreds of people on them listening to some anonymous account, and you don't know the credibility of the anonymous account. You don't know if what if they have hidden agendas and incentives. So while you know there, certainly it's positive to have formats like Twitter for people to counter some of that national uh, narrative that the media puts out, the corporate media. There's, there's that downside, which is you don't even know if what's being said is real to begin with. Um, maybe there's some more credibility when it comes to the NBCs of the world, these CNNs of the world, because there's some accountability. You don't really have that when it's some anonymous brand on a social media platform. Right. I, I think that that's, that's a, huge, a huge problem for, for media more broadly. Uh, I, I think you're right. There's positives and negatives to everything. I, mean, I think that's part of the reason that I, I went and started writing a blog post about this. I think that there are real issues with the, the way that uh, people that are well, I, I think let me just say that I think it's two things, right? So on one level, yes, there are people that are not credible that can accrue an audience and can appear credible and can be spreading things that are not true. Um, and so I do think that that is an actual problem. But then I think the other factor to this is that in response to that, in response to that reality, you get the pendulum swinging the other way where the corporate media, where the gatekeepers in conjunction with the social media censors and with, in some cases, as we've seen with the Twitter files, places like the FBI are so overly concerned about misinformation and disinformation that everything just gets swept up as potential misinformation. And under the guise of stopping speech that's not true from being out there, they just would rather just sweep everything up and say, oh, no, you need to rely on us. Let's let's get less information out into the ecosystem than more. And that then leads to even more problems because then people distrust the people that are saying, well, we need to clamp down on this. And we see this in, in with COVID in story after story. I mean, with the lab leak theory, with, you know, with with lockdowns, the consensus opinion ended up being essentially wrong. And so because of that, the people that were on the other end who were essentially being censored and being told that they were spreading misinformation are then now empowered to say, well, you know, look what happened. You know, they, they got it wrong. Yeah. And I'll tell you, you know, so I've been seeing obviously a lot of the, the Twitter files, you know, on the periphery. And it, it is wild to see the extent to which there was so much government interference and yeah. tech censorship. Um, do you get a sense that this is, and I think I know, the, know your answer, do you get a sense that this was something uh, unique to Twitter or is this something that's across the board? Uh, no, I think it's across the board for sure. I mean, we, we got to see the Twitter files really thanks to the person who ended up taking over Twitter. Uh, I, I think it'd be Elon Musk took over Facebook or Instagram or you know LinkedIn, go right on down the line. I think we would see the same sort of coziness between the people at these tech platforms. And I have to say, I... I am someone who, if we're assigning blame for what happened with the Hunter Biden laptop story or with COVID 
when it comes to the censorship of the American people and the American media in some cases. I'm someone who, who doesn't assign a lot of blame to Twitter censors themselves. I, I think they were getting incoming, frankly, from two places. They were getting it from the government. They were getting it from the FBI and from campaigns. And it should be noted, we, as we saw with the Twitter files, they were getting it from the Biden campaign, but also from the Trump campaign. So they were getting it from all over. And when you have the, the, you know, these guys in the black suits that come and meet you and say, hey, you know, be careful of this, uh, this disinformation, you don't want to be the one responsible for spreading this. And, you know, they're put in a very tough spot. And then as we saw with the Twitter files, they were getting it also from the media themselves. They, the, they were essentially, this, this was an offshoot of what happened in 2016, when the media was so flailing over the shock win that Donald Trump had in November 2016 that they were looking for people to blame. In some ways, they blamed themselves. They had this guilt over how they originally covered Donald Trump, but and, and also how they covered like Hillary's emails. So that it was part of that. But then they also then turned it to social media. I mean, just look at the way Facebook, Facebook in particular, but, but Twitter and other social platforms was treated by the corporate press pre-2016 and then post-2016. They were really demonized over, over the 2016 election. And so I think the way that the media treated the social media platforms was so ridiculous and so over the top that they had this, uh, they, you know, these scars of 2016. And as, as they got, went into 2020, as we saw with the Twitter files, they were very quick to, on that trigger finger to censor and, and not be caught in you're responsible for Donald Trump winning again territory. The, the, the whole thing is, is absolutely wild. Let me reset the room for everybody that's here. Uh, first of all, please make sure everybody you follow Steve Krakauer and check out his book Uncovered on Amazon. And again, this will be on all your favorite platforms. Where are the shareholders of Twitter in all this? Uh, So this is always what's kind of interesting to me is that all this stuff is coming out. Clearly, you could see that this stuff was happening over the last, you know, decade or so. But shareholders didn't seem to really care at all. And they should be caring about this kind of stuff. Any thoughts to sort of the the investor response to censorship? I think that we're still in as Twitter is, was essentially, you know, invented in 2008. You know, we're, we're not talking about a very long amount of time. I, when I walked in the building at, uh, at CNN in 2010, we were on Twitter. But there was not a sense of how can Twitter become part of our, our media environment. Um, you know, I, I talked to Rick Sanchez, if, if anyone's an older CNN viewer, you remember Rick Sanchez, who was really the first to pioneer using Twitter and other social media platforms on television and, and then using it as offline conversation or off television conversation on Twitter. And this, this was in 2008, 2009. It's not that long ago that this was happening. And so I think that still in 2023, we are in a bit of the wild west of, of where this all shakes out when it comes to Twitter, when it comes to, to Facebook and, and then emerging platforms. Look, TikTok, I mean, that's obviously a very hot conversation right now about how this all t- shakes out, what's right and what's not, even how independent media or legacy media uses these in their, you know, should they be using it? Should they be using it more or less? I think it's very much the wild west. And so I think in in the moment and in the moment of 2020 or even today, and I do think that the anti-speech activism that we've seen in the press, that we've seen among social media platforms has gotten worse since Trump left. So I think we're really in the, in the thick of it right now. I think that there's just panic and so the shareholders are not thinking long term. They're not thinking really critically about what is this platform and how should we be 
you know, using it, what's the responsible way of using it? Those, those are the conversations that are maybe happening right now, but there are certainly no wider conversation that there's, there's no consensus that has emerged about this. And so I think that in the rush to just be fearful of spreading misinformation and disinformation, we are still, and, and I think COVID, blame COVID for this, like you can with a lot of other things. Let's censor now and figure it out later. I think that's the thought process of the executives, the, you know, the top investors, uh, a lot of these companies, the, the media executives that we see in the C-suites. It's do this now, we'll figure it out later. I think that's still kind of the environment that we're in. Right. And, and, and I think it also goes back to uh, blame algos. Um, and I recall oh, yeah. hearing, uh, I think, a story that you had mentioned of someone that uh, put some news piece out on Facebook, got taken down, kept on putting back up. I forget the exact uh, yeah. story there, but if you can explain that to the audience, that'd be great. Yeah, this was great. So this, this Josh Rogan, uh, who was a Washington Post columnist, who who is really one of the best, I think, in the corporate media at the reporting and being you know fearless in his reporting, I, t- I talked to him in the book, and he relayed the story. Yeah, of so he wrote a book about China, um, which is which is a great read. That he wrote this in in twenty twenty, I believe, and so it ended up being it was about China, but it ended up being also about about COVID, and and because it just of the timing was was very uh, fortuitous for him. And so in his book, which I'm trying to just get the name of it, so I can uh, chaos under heaven uh, was the name of it. When the book came out, he published an excerpt in Politico. And it was about the lab, you know, essentially about the lab leak, about these Wuhan cables that were relaying the bad conditions in, in the Wuhan lab. And he wrote this, writes this story in 2020 and he publishes it in Politico. He puts it on Facebook. And then he finds that Facebook took it down. You know, they, they suspended it as potential misinformation. And he reached out, you know, he has sources at Facebook and he has friends at Facebook. And so he reached out to them and said, hey, what's going on? You know, this is, this is, and they put it back up and then they took it down again and then they put it back up. And, and he had this back and forth and he, t- he tells me and uncovered that it was this real light bulb moment for him and saying, look, I'm a mainstream journalist. You know, I, I've never had the experience of being censored before by a social platform. And so I also, by being this mainstream journalist, have the, the mechanisms to really not just write a little, oh, I'm going to appeal this and, and then it just goes into the ether, but to actually talk to people at Facebook and get these things reversed. But if I'm not me, if I'm just the average citizen, I don't have these these tools. And so I am now under the the thumb of the censors much more so and in a way that I didn't necessarily see before because this is actual real reporting. This is actual truthful reporting that's being censored. And and it was an eye-opening moment for him. And I think I think COVID was for so many people because of the way it all turned out. Um, look, I, I think that if the consensus opinion, the one consensus scientific quote unquote, expert elite consensus opinion turned out to be right about COVID. I still think the, the overreach with the censorship of other opinions would have been wrong, but it didn't, you know, they, they didn't win out. They, in fact, in many cases, they got it completely wrong. And so because of that, I think it was a real eye opener for so many people, the average American, that what we're being told is not true and true is not always right. And, and not, it's not nefarious necessarily that, that we're being told things. It's maybe just a mistake. But in that mistake, we should learn to be a lot more open-minded about a lot more opinions than we are and, and we were in that moment. No, and I think you hit on exactly the point. It, it, it doesn't have to be intentional. If an algorithm is removing content, it's because it's, it's identifying something within a margin of error. 
right? right. That, that is problematic. And this is where the other extreme also becomes problematic because people then say, well, then the, it's a conspiracy. They're trying to purposely remove all this content. It may simply be that it's framed in a way that trips up the algo to cause the removal. And then that also creates even more frustration, distrust when it's just sort of a part of doing business in fairness to a media company. Yeah, I, I think that's so much of it. And, and frankly, you know, it's a crux in a lot of ways also, right? They can lean, these social media companies can lean on the algorithm and and can say, oh, you know, it's, it's we're, we're, we're just being extra cautious with it. And look, I, I want to just say, you know, the, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was because in some ways, yes, I would love if the corporate media got better and really started to serving, serving the public. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. Even if their heart was in the right place, it would take a very long time for them to adjust and to do things right. So I, I think in the absence of that, what I've tried to do is lay out a, a playbook for the audience, uh, for the general consumer to see when there's red flags that show the media misleading you or potentially, you know, something to be skeptical of. And I, I lay this out throughout the book. And one of these examples is actually I take from, from Nate Silver of ABC and 538, who had this great point. This was about the lab leak theory, but I think it replies to so many other stories. And he, he said that if you see a story where there's two different opinions and there's experts on both sides and there's evidence on both sides, but there's one side that is very concerned about policing the discourse that is almost saying the other side is dangerous. We shouldn't hear from them. That's the side that you need to be skeptical of and is very often wrong. And we see this over and over again. If you're seeing a conversation happening and one side saying this and the other side is saying, don't even listen to the other side. They're dangerous. We can't hear from them. That's where you need to be very skeptical of, even if it's a side that you may agree with. Well, since you brought it up, let's, let's talk about TikTok for a little bit here. Um, yeah. I know some people were like fascinated by uh, the grilling of the uh, the CEO or, or whoever the, whatever the position is, the founder of TikTok by uh, by some of these politicians. Um, I turned it off immediately because it's like this is just noise and ridiculous. You right. got people that are you got people that are trying to uh, ask this guy questions who probably still have dial up AOL for God's sake and and probably have <laughs> Juno.com email addresses from like the late '90s. If anybody's old enough right. to remember that. So so um, first of all, I, I'm just curious to hear your take. I mean, do you think so, these fears around TikTok and China uh, and and societal manipulation, for lack of a better way of saying it, do you think those are overblown? Are there real national security concerns here? Or is this maybe the start of some kind of consensus by lawmakers around how media companies should be uh, controlling a message? Yeah, I, I think that it's, it's a convenient – I think TikTok is often a convenient full platform for a lot of other, other factors and other conversations that are happening out there. Now, I, I would say I don't necessarily think that that they are not a national security threat and that they are not, you know, that, that we shouldn't be wor worried about the CCP looking into uh, and being able to essentially spy on us. And, you know, in, in, in a different way, I'm not even as concerned about that as I am as someone who has a six-year-old and a, and a one-year-old, but, but even more so for my son, who is, is the way that what does TikTok look like in America versus in China, as an example, and the way that, you know, we that the analogy we made before, but, you know, there being the algorithm in America is serving candy and the algorithm in China is serving, you know, vegetables. And, uh, and there's a reason for that. That's, that's something that we should be very aware of and paying attention to also. So I say all of that, I think all of that is real, but at the same time, I think it's, it's easy and it's, it's lazy to make everything about TikTok. I think that, that it's, it makes the social media conversation it, it bypasses so much, so many other factors, so many other elements to this. 
which I think are are very valid also. And then also just, you know, Josh Rogan, who again writes about China in also in Uncover, tells me about the way that so many elements of the corporate media are being spun by China, by by China entities. I mean, we, there's been outlets like Sebafor, which launched recently, which does good work, but, you know, Ben Smith and, and others, but they have investment from from China and China companies. And, and we see this all across the board. So I think it's a very convenient scapegoat in a lot of ways to have TikTok, not necessarily saying that there's no story there, but it's it's also in many ways lazy by the government, both sides of the aisle and by the media to make everything about TikTok as well. Yeah, I, I don't disagree on that. It's it's sort of the the boogeyman from that perspective. All right, right. now now the the Twitter dynamic I think is interesting with Musk, but Musk himself jokes nonstop about how Twitter is a nonprofit organization, uh, <laughs> right? Given given that you know, and and you know, the shareholders know this as well. There's this there's this really bizarre I think situation where everyone's hoping that Twitter continues to be this this beacon of hope for free speech. But unless uh, Musk can get paid on it, as much as he may claim to be altruistic, he's a businessman at the core. I find it personally hard to believe that he would keep subsidizing something that's not making money, no matter how rich he is, in you know under the the guise of free speech. Are you hopeful that Twitter is going to keep on being what people are hope uh, it's going to be, or is there a risk that, as is the case with a lot of social media networks, if they can't turn a profit? It just goes by the wayside. Yeah, I, I think that there's uh, I'm someone who was cautiously optimistic uh, about Elon Musk coming in. In fact, about a year before he bought Twitter, I wrote a newsletter at Fourth Watch, uh, which you can find at fourthwatch.media, um, saying that I, I thought that he should buy Twitter. <laughs> I, and the reason is because I think that we are in an environment now where I don't I don't think Twitter is necessarily a media platform, but it's so much part of the media ecosystem. And we're seeing billionaires buy up media now, right? Jeff Bezos in the Washington Post, Mark Benioff in Time Magazine. You're seeing Lorraine Powell Jobs uh, getting involved in the, with The Atlantic. And so I would rather that the more freedom-minded billionaires, libertarians, if you will, uh, look to media platforms as well. Because I, first of all, it's much better off than getting the government involved. And it's much better off than the billionaires that maybe want to exert political pressure that are not about freedom of speech in the First Amendment. So I was bullish on Elon buying it, and I think it's very complicated, and there's been it's been bumpy. Um, but as you say, it's at the end of the day, he's a smart businessman, and he's not going to continue funding this uh, like a nonprofit if it's not going to make money or it's not going to have this this sale at the end of the at the end of his term. So I'm I don't think Twitter's ever going to go away. Um, I, I was, I always laugh at these people that still have, and you know, no shots if you do, but you know, Mastodon and post news and it, it, people really, you know, the, the anti Elon crowd who loved him only a few years ago when he was, um, you know, landing rockets and, and, and building, you know, cars that were going to be good for the environment. Now they turn against him because he happens to, to not be, uh, adhering to the consensus opinions on politics or COVID or all of this. So. I, I laugh when these people try to go away from it, and then they then they're right back on Twitter. You know, the, all these same people are still tweeting as much as they ever did. It's going to be a niche platform, I think. It's not going to have the mass appeal that an Instagram has or others. But I think that there is going to always be a sense that that Twitter is where a conversation happens between people that are newsmakers, and so in that sense, it's going to be an. A, of interest. I, I will say one one factor to look for is does Donald Trump rejoin Twitter later this year? My sense is that come July, August, you're going to see 
real Donald Trump, fire up that Twitter account like he used to and be on there. And that will, I think, give a, a nice burst of relevance in a lot of ways to what's happening on, on you know, here. I think that's going to happen. I, I think it's never going to have mass appeal. But if it can, if it can turn a profit based on just being the hub in the way that, you know, places like Slack are, Twitter is the public Slack. I think that it can have a real business here if you just keep it contained to what it really is. Let's go to uh, some of the audience. Go ahead. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, I think it's a huge problem. Um, in fact, you know, in, in doing some of the interviews for this book, I, I've been asked, well, what's the solution? Or what's a way for the average consumer? What's a good source that they should go to to, uh, to get it, uh, it fairly? And it's always a hard one because I say, you know, for me, it's my Twitter feed, which has taken me a lot of time to curate into a nice mix of people that I generally trust, but also a variety of sources so I can check against them. And that takes time and effort. And most people have jobs and lives and they like to go outside and, and are not, you know, obsessed in the way that maybe I am and others are. So I agree. I think confirmation bias is, is a huge problem. And it's only exacerbated by these social media platforms where we can now curate our feed to uh, a term that I, I've also written about, which is like casual consumption. You know, there's, there's less and less of sitting back on the couch, turning on the TV, flipping around, and consuming what the news gives you, uh, or even you know, picking up a newspaper, picking up a magazine, saying, you know, now we're, we are really self-selecting in what we do on social media. I get a series of emails every day from a variety of places like Substack and, and the writers there. But now I'm very much contained to what is this person thinking today and getting that and, and taking that away. And then we think of like, let's get even more meta, the incentive structure of that person has a subscription business model that if they start to do things and, and write things and say things that are turning off their audience, then they're going to lose subscribers. And so they can't do that either, right? They need to essentially feed the beast and give their audience what they want. And so I, I think it's, it's a problem in that sense. But I do think that for the average person who wants to step outside of the bubble and to get a, a variety of sources, there are a couple of avenues to do it. I think that you have to be You've got to be smart about how you select in your social media uh, platforms and your and your diet. Um, there are places like Real Clear Politics, which I'll, I'll shout out, that you can go there and they can give you a nice snapshot of here's what a variety of sources are saying on topics that are interesting and important today. So it, it does take doing a little bit more work. And then I think the big the big red flag for me is always, can you find people, even if you trust them, like you think of like someone like a Glenn Greenwald where he will sometimes say things that will that his I, I would say his core audience will disagree with or will not be happy with. Sometimes it's the the hard truths. Um, I, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I'm the executive producer of the Megan Kelly show. Megan is great with this. You know, we have an audience and we're going to just tell them the truth no matter where that is and whether they're going to be happy with that or not. If you can find places like that where they're not only giving you what you want to hear, 
that's a sign that someone's doing it right. So, so look out for that also. You know, it's, um, in listening to all this, I always go back to uh, this line I keep saying, which is amateurs look to the right of the equal sign, pros look to the left, which mm. means go to the source, right? And the problem, I think, is, and I'll even relate this to inflation. The problem, I think, is that people are so busy, people are trying to go about their daily lives to survive the higher cost of everything. They don't have the time or the mental energy to look to the left of the equal sign. So what does everybody do? They simply look at headlines and then that's how they form their view of the world. I wonder how much of this is even in quotes fixable because we're at a point in society where uh, attention spans are short and nobody wants to put the, to your point, the effort in. Yeah. It's, it's also why I, you know, I, I, like I said, I try to lay out in a variety of ways, tools for the audience themselves to bypass the gatekeepers. But I do think that in a, in, in a society that is really serving the public, it is incumbent on these large media platforms that have lots of resources to get better at this and to serve the public in more responsible ways. I, in, in the last chapter of Uncovered, I lay out some potential solutions, what can be done. And you know, some of it is like getting the, the, you know, the Acela media, breaking that up, going to places that are outside of the Beltway. But also, you know, ombudsman, and public editors, people at organizations that used to be responsible for serving the public and being checks on their own organizations. They were people that were hired at the places like the New York Times and, uh, and other outlets, and they've gone away. Um, I think that could actually make a big difference. But the other thing I would say is that you know, it's a, it's res- the, these journalism outlets that have adapted to the way the news media moves now. It used to be the 24-hour news cycle for cable news. Now it's like 24 minutes on social media. I mean, have you, I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, but if, if anyone's ever normally on Twitter and then you go away and you come back like two or three days later without opening your app, try to understand what's even happening, what people are even talking about. And there's all these in conversations. It's, it, and, and the, the news media though, they, the corporate press has a, an obligation to not go and buy into that themselves. There's a concept I write about called glance journalism, where Think about the way the story was covered originally. Uh, a lot, we see this a lot with mass shootings. We're seeing it recently. Um, the, the way it was originally covered is oftentimes the way that it just becomes ingrained in the audience's mind. And so it's, it's, on, it's incumbent on the media to slow down, get the story right originally, but at the very least make a very big deal of when they get it wrong to correct it and, and make sure that the audience understands it. I, and uncover just as a, as a small example, uh, if anyone remembers the Pulse nightclub shooting that happened in 2018, this was in Orlando at a gay nightclub and it was a horrific mass shooting, but the way it was covered was that it was a, essentially an anti LGBT homophobic attack. And it wasn't, in fact, as was reported years later, the, the story is that actually the, the, it was an Islamic terrorist who, when he entered that gay nightclub, asked the security guard where all the women were. <laughs> so it wasn't even targeting a gay nightclub. It, but that was how it was originally reported. That was how it was ingrained in so many people's minds. And the correction never gets as much attention. So we need the media to get the story right. Because as you mentioned, yeah, people don't have time. People don't have time to spend and look around a bunch of different sources. We, it, they need to slow down and get it right in the first place. I want to I touch on... You work from the executive producer standpoint. So I used to do the media rounds quite a bit earlier in my career. I used to be on CNBC and Bloomberg almost every day. And one of the dynamics that I thought was interesting was that every single producer that booked me 
was pretty much a kid out of college. And they didn't – and that's not a critique on on anything except that, you know, the producers I often found were people that were not necessarily experienced. They were simply trying to get people that they thought were draws for ratings. They weren't curating, in other words, based right. on the knowledge of what's being said. Am I off that that's sort of a, a, a broader problem with traditional media and – how does that compare against what you do with Megyn Kelly? Yeah, well, I, I think it, it, when we look at, you know, when we, when we start building this, obviously, you know, Megan is someone who was, was very much in the corporate media, just as I was, although even at a much, much, much larger scale, someone who was, you know, at the top of the game at Fox News and then at the top of the game at NBC News and, uh, and then got outside of it. And, you know, in conversations that we had back in 2020 before we launched the podcast, which ended up becoming, you know, the YouTube show and the radio show. It was really important for us to find the kinds of talent on our producing team that were not going to be swayed by what was being said on social media. They were not going to be fearful of backlash when you cover certain stories. In fact, we wanted to lean into it. You know, whatever the third rails were of that month, that's the story we wanted to go to and cover, um, no matter what side it was on, always with an obligation to the truth. And, and it takes work. I mean, it's hard. Think about like it's, it's harder to do things that, that other people are not, are not doing than it is to just essentially aggregate and, and to do that. And so I, I think that that's, that's a big factor here. Yes. I, some of it's age, although not just age, I, I think that there are, this is an industry where unlike, let's say, you know, a plumber, uh, where there's Yelp reviews and, you know, you, you Angie's list and you can see, you can sort of say, okay, this one is very good. This one's a little bit lazy. This one doesn't do a good job. And the best ones rise to the top and the worst ones kind of get weeded out. That is how many industries work, but the media industry is not that way at all. In fact, it's almost the opposite. A, A lot of times the, the worst journalists are the ones that are rewarded the most because they're good at other things. Maybe they're good at building a brand on social media Maybe they're good at playing inside the system and there's no real public way for accountability. And so we, you have to be very aware of that. And it also, again, this, this goes back to the, what can the, the press do to get better? They've got to get more curious. They've got to get more intellectually honest and intellectually curious and allow for people to get in there who want to not just do what the easiest way out is or the, the laziest way. Um, but to really, you know, try to dig in and understand and, and serve the audience in new ways. I think that's a, a good place to wrap this Twitter space. Now, everybody, please make sure you follow Steve uh, Krakauer. Check out uh, Uncovered on Amazon. Any um, any other ways that people can find you or reach out to you aside from Twitter? Yeah, absolutely. So if you go to um, fourthwatch.media, that's F-O-U-R-T-H watch.media. That's my my newsletter. I write uh, every every week there very similar themes to what's going on there. And you can also find a way to reach me on my email address as well at that that location. Thank you everybody for joining us. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, 
and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.